0: Well, it's time we stopped being around the bush. When it comes to issues of purity and morality, the church has been too silent for too long. And we've allowed a decaying secular culture to set the agenda for... What we believe. And it's time for us to stop beating around the bush and hold forth the truth of God's word. God has spoken on these issues. God has spoken to us about purity. And so it's time for us as the church to say this is what God says and clearly says. And while we hold forth the truth of what God says about morality, it's also important that we hold forth the truth of what God says about salvation. There is right and there is wrong. But there also is hope for those that have done wrong. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad there's hope for folks that have done wrong because I've done wrong. How about you? And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And so we as the church have to, have to balance speaking forth the truth of what God says about morality while also speaking forth the truth of what God says about salvation and forgiveness and freedom. Now I want to do that this morning as we look in Colossians chapter 3. So turn there with me. Colossians chapter 3. As we continue our journey through this letter that we call Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to focus specifically on verses 5 through 7. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. Colossians 3, verse 5, the Bible says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Let's pray. Father, we pause to give you glory. You're the reason that we're here. We pause, Lord, to acknowledge our need for you in this moment. I pray that you would work in our lives. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would sweep across this room like a mighty rushing wind. And take the word of God and apply it to our hearts that we might understand it and that we might obey it. All for the glory of God. So work in our midst. You are great and you are glorious. And it's such a privilege, Lord, to gather together as a faith family to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. And Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, as we have journeyed through the book of Colossians, we've seen that this uh, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae, found in Asia Minor. And the pattern for this letter follows the pattern that Paul uses in other letters he wrote in the New Testament. The first two chapters, the first half of the book roughly, deals with doctrine. Paul shares with us some doctrinal realities concerning who Jesus is what Jesus Christ has done, and what it means to be saved, what it means to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The second half of the book, uh, Paul unpacks what these doctrinal realities ought to mean for our day-to-day lives. So you might say the first half of the book is, is theology, the second half of the book is practice. And just by the way, you know that theology is not intended just to make us smarter, right? That's not why... Doctrine so important. God intends His truth to affect the way that you and I live. And and that's the case here in this text. Now, to to think about the context of this immediate passage where Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, we need to establish the context, because look what it says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. The word therefore refers back to what he had just said. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Paul had reminded the believers in Colossae and reminded us what it means to be saved. He spoke of union with Christ. Uh, The the phrase union with Christ means that every spiritual blessing that you receive, you receive because of your relationship with Christ. So when you were saved and you placed your faith in Christ, you were united to Christ. If you look there in your notes, when you placed your faith in Christ, there was a decisive end and a glorious beginning. Look what it says about a decisive end in verse 3. For you have died. When you met Christ as your Lord and Savior, the old you died. Your old sin nature, your flesh, it died. And by that, the Bible teaches, uh, or, or the Bible means that, that the, the, the old sin nature no longer has power over you. It no longer has dominion over you. The power of the old you died when you met Christ. It was put to death. And when you were saved, there was a glorious beginning. Look what it says in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. When you met Christ, you were raised to walk in newness of life. God made you brand new. Now this is summarized beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the context of chapter 3 is... You have been united with Christ, there's been a decisive end to the old you, and you've been made brand new. Now, looking in your notes, if this is true, it ought to make a radical difference in the way that we live. If this is true, it ought to make a radical difference in the way that we live. See, some people think that Jesus is just just for fire insurance from hell. Like, if I know Jesus, then I don't go to hell, I get to go to heaven. Now, that's true. Jesus forgives us of our sin. He washes away our sin and gives us eternal life in heaven after we die. And for that, I am very, very grateful. How about you? But Jesus Christ is not simply fire insurance from hell. That's not all that he is. Jesus Christ also means to transform our lives in the here and now. He he wants to, to, to change us. And if we know Jesus, if the old the old self has, has died, and we are brand new creations in Christ. It ought to affect the way that we live now, right? And, and that's the point that Paul makes in chapter 3. He wants us to see the difference that Jesus Christ makes in our life. Now, this morning we're going to study the difference that Jesus Christ makes in the area of purity. Next week we're going to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in relationships. We're going to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in marriage, We're going to talk about the difference Jesus makes in families and parenting. Jesus makes a difference. And we're going to unpack this as we work our way through chapter 3. So let's talk this morning about the difference that Jesus makes in the area of purity. I want to give you three points under this heading when we think of purity and God's command for our life. First of all. I want you to see the mandate for purity. The mandate for purity. This passage, verses 5 through 11, this passage revolves around, centers around two commands. The first command is found in verse 5 where Paul writes, Put to death what is earthly in you. So that phrase, put to death, is an imperative verb. It's a command. Put it to death. Kill it. Kill the old you. Don't let the old you have its way in your life. And then in verse 8, Paul writes, But now you must put them all away. The deeds of the flesh, you to put them away. Lay them aside. Both of these commands, put to death, put away, convey that because of our union with Christ, our sin nature, the old us, our sin nature should not dominate our lives. It should be put to death. It should be laid aside like an ill Fitting coat. That's what he means by these commands. And this passage not only centers around two commands, it centers around two different lists of sin. How many of you understand that as long as a a preacher's talking about sin in general, no one's offended? But when a preacher starts getting specific, starts stepping on toes, that's when he gets uncomfortable, right? And what Paul does here in chapter 3 is he goes to meddling. He's not just talking about sin in general, in abstract form. He deals with specific issues. Now, the first list is found in verse 5, and these sins are sensual sins. Sensual sins. Sins that deal with with sensuality. Look in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. The second list is found in verse 8, and these sins are social sins. These deal with our interaction with one another look what it says in verse eight and we'll get to this next week by the way but now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another and he deals with specific areas that affect our relationships social sins and so he gets very specific and i want to focus our time this morning on that first list found there in verse five i want to focus on the mandate that Paul gives us. Put to death the things that we find in this list. I want to just walk through that list very quickly and and share with you this these thoughts about purity. Now just kind of a quick heads up. I'm your tour guide this morning and I'm taking you through verses 5 through 7. You need to understand that we're going to go real fast the first two points. So I know I'm going fast, okay? Real fast because I want to spend most of our time on point number three. So just kind of hang in there with me uh, as we walk through the first two points, and then we'll slow down a little bit on the third point. But as we think about this mandate, what are the sins that that Paul wants us to to put to death? Let's just look at them one by one. The The first item in the list is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. The word in the Greek language is the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's It it speaks of any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside of the loving boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. So this word was used to to be a comprehensive word of all types of sexual immorality. It it summed up really everything. And we need to be clear here. Remember I said it's time for the church to stop beating around the bush because God has spoken on these issues. And we need to, to trumpet what God has said about Morality and immorality. So let me just be very, very clear with you. God has given us sexual intimacy as a gift. It's his idea. And he's given it to us as a gift to be enjoyed in the loving boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Now anything else other than that is a sin. God calls it sin. God says it is wrong. We should not do it. That's what God has said as we see his unfolding uh, revelation in the Word of God. Sexual intimacy is a gift given us by God to be enjoyed in the loving boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. And, And everything other than that is a sin. Now, now growing up, we had a fireplace in our home because you need a fireplace in North Florida. (laughs) But we had a fireplace, and I remember one particular evening, a log rolled out of the fireplace onto the carpet in front of the fireplace. And Dad moved quick to get the log, get it back on the fire, you know, put out the the little little burn places on uh, the carpet. It was kind of a dramatic moment. But we all understand that fire in a fireplace is a good thing. It gives light, it gives warmth, it gives heat. There's nothing like gathering around a fireplace, right? But we know that if that fire, which is a good thing, if it gets outside of the boundaries, if it gets into the house, it'll burn the house down, right? And it's the same way when it comes to sexual intimacy. As long as it's in the boundaries, it's good, it's wonderful. It's a gift from God, but when it gets outside of the boundaries, it destroys. And God wants us to understand that. So the first first phrase is sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual activity takes place outside of the boundaries of love love between a man and a woman found in marriage. Now the second word is the word impurity. Impurity. Look what it says there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity. The word impurity speaks of a state of moral corruption that entails the mind, speech, and the heart. It's what's going on on the inside of you. Did you know it's possible to portray yourself, to everyone watching, as a a moral upstanding person, all the while being a mess on the inside? Do you know that's possible? Did you know that we can put on a show for each other? And it's possible to act like you got it all together, and you're a very moral person, but you are filled with moral pollution. Your mind is impure, your heart's impure, what you dwell on, what you talk about, it's impure. And and Paul writes, put to death immorality actions, but also put to death impurity. Those things that fill up your mind and your heart and come out in your speech. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, Paul writes, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God's called us to be holy. The third word we see in this list is the word passion. This speaks of misdirected desires. Misdirected desires. It's okay to be passionate as long as your passion is is pointing the right direction. But if your passion gets sidetracked, it can become a very destructive thing. Think of King David. King David was a very passionate man, right? We see his passion worshiping God with all of his heart, all of his heart, all of his his mind. There's a reason that God called David a man after my own heart. That's what God said. He was a passionate worshiper of God. He had a a strong desire to see God glorified. That's why he went and fought Goliath, for the glory of God. He was passionate. But one day his passion got misdirected, didn't it? He saw a woman named Bathsheba. She was married to one of his soldiers named Uriah, but he wanted Bathsheba as his own. So he commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant and to cover it all up, he has her husband Uriah murdered. Why? Misdirected passion. His passion went in the wrong direction and caused great heartache in his life. The next word is the word evil desire. Look what it says there in verse 5 evil desire. This word simply speaks of lust. Lust. We know what lust is. And, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, the same word is used. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5. He writes that each one of us should know, verse uh, 4, how to control our own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, our lives should not be ruled by lust. Jesus used this word. Over in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. Now, if the Pharisees were there when Jesus said, do not commit adultery, they would have all said, amen. Amen, Jesus, don't commit adultery. But Jesus kept talking. And Jesus said, I'm telling you this. If you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So lust is a sin that leads you astray and shipwrecks your life. And, and Paul says, put it aside. Put aside that evil desire. But the last word in the list is the word covetousness. Interesting. Covetousness. This word speaks of the desire to possess more than one has. That's how you and I usually use the word covetousness. Like, you're driving down the road, and you're in a Toyota Camry, and someone passes you in a Mercedes. You think, boy, if I could just have that Mercedes, I'd be happy, Right? That, that's, that's wanting something uh, that you don't have because you think that something will make you happier than what you have. It's not being content with what you have. That's the way we usually use the word. But covetousness can also speak of the desire to possess more than one ought to have. Wanting something that doesn't belong to you. That's how God used it in the Ten Commandments. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. Then he gives us a list of things we should not covet. It says, you shall not covet. Listen, one of the things was your neighbor's wife. Why? She doesn't belong to you. Don't covet her. And so we should not desire things that don't belong to us. We should not desire to possess something that we ought not to have. Here's how Douglas Moose says it. The last item in this list usually has the general sense of an inappropriate desire for more but this general sense would of course include the uncontrolled desire for more and greater uh, sexual experience this being the case and considering the general meaning of the word paul might intend to suggest that greed or covetousness is the source of the other four sins in other words the reason we lust the reason we have impurity in our life the reason we commit immorality is because we have a desire for something that doesn't belong to us A desire for something we ought not to have. Forbidden fruit, right? It's it's why you walk by a sign that says, don't touch wet paint, what do you want to do? You want to touch it, don't you? That's our old sin nature. It wants what we ought not to have. Covetousness. So Paul says, put these things to death. Don't do them. Don't let them rule the day in your life. That's the mandate for purity. But secondly, very quickly, I want to talk about the motivations for purity. Because a lot of time we talk about the mandate, right? Don't do this, don't do that. But we don't talk about why. What are the the right motivations to pursue purity in our lives? Well, let me give you four of them. First of all, these sins listed there in verse 5 are, listen, wicked crimes against a holy God. Wicked crimes against a holy God. You say, wait, that's kind of harsh, right? Wicked crimes against a holy God. How could you say that? Look what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, on account of these, the things he just listed in verse 5, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. People that do these things and are not forgiven by Jesus will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. That's how serious it is. God is, God is holy. He's perfect. He's, he's light. There's no darkness in him at all. And he punishes sin that is not forgiven. And so we need to say, listen, we should not do these things. We should not practice these things. We should not let these things rule the day in our lives because they're crimes against a holy God. It's not just a oops, I messed up or, you know, I, I stumbled and fell. It's, it's I have sinned against God. And that's serious business. That's one motivation for purity. A second motivation is this. These sins destroy lives. These sins destroy lives. Look what it says there in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So Paul reminds the believers in Colossae, this is who you used to be before you were saved. It's almost as if Paul's saying, how did that work out for you? How was life before you were changed? As if to remind them that things weren't that good when sensuality ruled the day. And and God has told us that any kind of of sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman destroys. matter of fact, hold your place, but turn to Proverbs chapter 5, the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. Look what it says in verse 21. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his past. You think, well, I got away with it. No, you never get away with it. David thought he got away with it, right? Never get away with it. God sees everything. Verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So God's saying sin destroys. It'll destroy your life. And look what he says over in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. He talks about the specific sin of adultery. Proverbs says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. Watch this. He who does it destroys himself. Now, question. Is it unloving for us as a church to say to, a, to our culture, these sexual sins will destroy your life? Is that unloving for us? I would submit to you, the most loving thing we can do is tell folks the truth. If there's something that destroys folks, we ought to warn them, right? For example, say you're on the side of a road, and you know that a little farther down the road, the bridge is out. And if a car keeps going down that road, it will plunge into an icy river. If you knew that, would you not do everything you could to stop the cars going down the road, waving your arms? Stop! Stop! Destruction is ahead! It would be unloving for you to say nothing. And it's the same when it comes to these issues. We've got to say, God has spoken on these issues. There is right and there is wrong and if you choose to do it your own way and not God's way, you will experience severe consequences. These sins destroy lives. Next, these sins are incompatible with who you are now as a believer. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, In these you too once walked, this is past tense, when you were living in them. So, so this is who you used to be, it's not who you are now. Now that you know Christ, now that the old you has been has been put to death, now that you've been raised to walk in newness of life, it is simply incompatible for you to live the way you used to live. You're a new person now. And it ought to show up. Jesus makes a difference. So it's incompatible to to put on a mask and say, boy, you know, I'm a believer in Christ, I love Jesus, and yet to be living a life of unrepentant immorality. That just doesn't add up, does it? Where the word hypocrite comes from. You got a mask on, acting one way, but your life says something totally different. Paul says, that's who you used to be. It's not who you should be now. Here's the fourth thing, fourth motivation for purity. These sins are, are idolatry. These sins are idolatry. Look in verse 5. He mentions immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? What's it say? Idolatry, wanting something that you ought not to have is idolatry. It's not just, I made a mistake, oops. It is worshiping another god. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is when you you desire to find satisfaction, security, or significance in anything or anyone else other than God. That's idolatry. When you're looking for someone or something to give you what only God can give you, that's idolatry. So your, your, your sin outside of those boundaries God has given us in His Word is not just, you know, I made a mistake. It, it's, it's worshiping another God, a false God, that never delivers anything but heartache and destruction. And so what's life all about? Listen, what's, what should be our major aim in life? To glorify God, right? How can you glorify God if you're committing idolatry? So one of the motivations to pure living is living an impure life is idol worship. And so those are some motivations for purity. But I want to get to the third thing and spend the rest of our time here. Wait, how do we practically put to death the deeds of the flesh? This list. How do we, how do we kill those things? If they're not an ongoing reality in our lives. Well, let me give you some methods for purity. I want to give you a a sentence, and I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking that one sentence, all right? Phrase by phrase. Here's the sentence. Consider, present, and obey filled with the Spirit's power in the context of community. There it is. Consider, present, and obey filled with the Spirit's power in the context of community. First of all, consider. In other words, If you're going to live a victorious Christian life, a pure Christian life, there's some things you need to know. Now before Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, he reminds them in verse 3 of this. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's reminding them their old sin nature is dead now. The old flesh no longer is to have power over them. They needed to get that. They needed to understand that. Look what Paul says over in Romans chapter 6. Turn there with me. Romans 6. Let me show you several verses in Romans as we unpack this sentence. Romans chapter 6. Look in verse 11. Romans 6 verse 11. The Bible says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, consider who you are in Christ. You know, the truth will set you free, right? The truth will set you free. And the truth of who you are in Christ will set you free. The truth is, if you are saved, sin is no longer your master. Let me say again. The truth is, if you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, sin no longer has dominion over you unless you let it. It's not your master anymore. So stop living like sin is calling the shots over your life. It's not your master. He says, consider, you're dead to sin. Sin no longer has power over you. Like what F.F. Bruce writes. Since believers have died with Christ, the domination of the old habits and instincts has been broken. say, wait, how can I have power over my sin nature? How can I say no to sin and yes to God? Look in your notes. The resurrection power of Jesus is at your disposal. The power of God resides in your life to give you the wherewithal to say no to sin and yes to God. So stop living a defeated life. Consider who you are in Christ. You need to know that in Christ the sin nature no longer has Dominion over you. You need to consider that. I think a lot of people that live in spiritual defeat don't understand what it means to be saved. They don't, they don't get this. If they did, they wouldn't live the way they're living. Let me give you another part of the sentence. Consider present. What I mean by present, look what Paul says there in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. He says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of, uh, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. What does it mean to present yourself to God? What does it mean to present your body to God? It means that you surrender your entire life to Him. Surrender your entire life to Him. Every day, every day, you you get up and, and you come before God and say, God, my mind is yours. My heart is yours. My tongue, it's yours. My hands are yours. My feet, they're yours. What I surf on the internet, That time is yours. What I think about. God, you have my mind. You're in control. I'm presenting myself to you. I surrender to you. The word present carries with it the idea of a a military inspection. Soldiers line up in formation, waiting for a superior officer to come and to inspect the troops. And every day, you and I need to get before King Jesus and line up for inspection on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, this day, my body, my thoughts, it's all yours. And I promise you, if you will daily surrender to Jesus, you'll start winning some victory in, victories in your life. But you've got to surrender. You've got to present yourself to God every day. The next word is the word obey. Consider, present, and obey. Look in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. Everyone say obedient. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So he's saying you've learned some things, you've learned some truth, and you're obeying it. When I say obey, I mean this. Know God's commands and expectations and keep them. Do what He says. Let God's word shape your values, not the Grammy Awards. Let let God's word shape your ethics, not MTV Music Awards. Let your role model be Jesus instead of Miley Cyrus. Right? Let the Word of God shape your heart and your mind, your values, your, your, what you believe about right and wrong. Morality. Purity. Live by the biblical ethic. Know what God's Word says and then obey it. Do it. That's what God wants from our life. Consider. Present. And obey. But don't miss the next part of the sentence. The next part of the sentence is filled with the Spirit's power. Listen to me. You cannot defeat sin in your own strength. Not going to happen. And maybe now we're getting close to some of your issues. Some of you are living in spiritual defeat because you're trying to fix yourself. How's that working? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this command to put to death our earthly sin nature is to be done in the power of the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He mentions putting things to death again. Romans 8, verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Notice there, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. How do you put to death the deeds of the flesh? By the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, not in your own strength, right? It's clear. How do you kill your old sin nature? By the power of the Spirit. And so here's what that means. Every day, you let the Spirit have control. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, came to live on the inside of you. And every day, we're to to let the Spirit fill our lives. Every day, Holy Spirit, would you control me? Control my thoughts, my actions, my speech, my conduct. Bear fruit through my life. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. Give me the, the power to say no to sin, no to the old Wade, and yes to Jesus. If you let the Spirit fill your life every day, He will give you the power you need to live a pure life. So we are to, we are to consider and to present and obey filled with the power of the Spirit of God. You can't do it on your own. Stop trying. A Spirit-filled people are a victorious people. Amen? I'll say it again because I don't think you... I had one amen. A Spirit-filled people are a victorious people. Amen? Period. One final phrase I want you to see. Consider, present, obey, fill with the Spirit's power in the context of community. We need each other's help as we pursue a growing lifestyle of purity. Turn to Second Timothy. We're going to close with this verse. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. Very important verse. The Bible says, so flee youthful passions, run from the wrong things, run from immorality, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Now, how do you do that? Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are not called to run the race alone. He says here, we should be surrounded in in the race by people who love the Lord, who call on Him with a pure heart, We need each other. We need encouragement, don't we? And we need accountability to keep us on the right path. As you run from the wrong things, and by the way, there's no shame in running. If you find yourself in a potentially compromising situation, there is no shame in running. I mean, literally running. not only do you run from the wrong things you run toward the right things faith love righteousness purity but you do it with others who can encourage you and help you along the way every thursday morning i have a a pastor friend i meet with and we ask each other some really hard questions accountability questions and i know every week those questions are coming and it keeps me on guard because i know i'm going to be asked about that certain issue and so i'm more vigilant because of that accountability in my life iron the bible says sharpens iron We need that. And so get into a connect group where you have some folks around you that are cheering you on. Pray for a a, a person that you can share your heart with, a prayer partner, accountability partner, and and, and get some folks in your life that are going to help you run the right direction and, and warn you and admonish you when you're running the wrong direction. You need that. I need that. We all need that. Run with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So wait, how do I put to death that which is earthly in me? How do I stop letting the flesh have victory in my life? That sentence right there. Consider, present, obey, filled with the Spirit's power in the context of community. Now I want to say this. We're talking about morality and right and wrong and what the Bible says. And the Bible is very, very clear. And we are doing our culture no favors by watering down what the Bible says. But I want you to understand this. You may be here this morning and say, Wade, I've been living an immoral lifestyle. Things you've been talking about are happening in my life. Can I tell you this? In Jesus, there's complete forgiveness available. And Jesus will set you free from those sins. He'll chart a new course for your life if you'll let Him. Say, wait, why would Jesus forgive me for all of my junk, all of my brokenness, all of my dysfunction, all of my immorality? all of my wickedness. Why would He do that? Listen, because He loves you. So I have the incredible privilege as a pastor of this church to stand up and say, God has spoken clearly. But if you've transgressed God's commandments like I have, there's a Savior. There's a forgiver. His name is jesus listen to me you don't have to live in guilt and shame you don't have to live in hopelessness jesus christ will wash all of that sin out of your life and he'll set you free and chart a new course for you that is good news